Matthew 24, and we're going to read more or less the whole chapter, stop just short of the end. Uh, Nick and I take it in turns to break up sermon series to plan them Um, today, and then we allocate them to one another. Today, I'm having to preach all of Matthew 24, so you can guess who broke this one up and set it uh, together. Uh, Jesus is going to be speaking, children, about two things, about the fall of the temple and the end of the world. So see if you can follow those two themes through. As I read it to us, let's hear uh, the voice of the Holy Spirit as he speaks to us through his word. Matthew 24. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these things, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him in private, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you'll hear of wars and rumours of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there'll be famines and earthquakes in various places. And all these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they'll deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down to take what's in his house. And let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there'll be great tribulation, such as not been um, seen from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the land will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they'll gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. From the beginning, sorry, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. 
As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, nor the fa- but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But you know this, that if the master of the house had known in which part of the night the thief was coming, he'd have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, send your spirit to enlighten our our dark and confused minds, to soften our our hard and stony hearts, and to wake us up from our sleep. We pray that this word would do good to us this morning. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, We're people who long to know the future, aren't we? We, We'd love to know what's around the corner. Uh, We want to know for all sorts of reasons. For some of us, we're anxious about what's coming. What what is next? What is going to happen? For others of us, it's just curiosity. I wonder what life will be like in a few years' time. I wonder where I'll be living in 2030. And if we knew the future, at least some parts of the future, if we knew the future, it would change how we behave now, wouldn't it? So a very mundane level. If you knew what the national lottery numbers were going to be next week, um, it would be very tempted to go and buy a ticket, wouldn't it? If you knew what was coming, if you knew who was going to win the World Cup, it would be very tempting to put a bet on. Similarly, if on the the 24th of uh, February 2022, you woke up in the morning in Kiev knowing that Vladimir Putin was about to invade, you would run for your life. Uh, In this chapter, one of the hardest chapters in in Matthew's Gospel, one of the hardest chapters in the New Testament, Jesus is speaking about the future. Now, it's a passage that is um, fertile ground for, frankly, um, borderline nuts interpretations. Where, when Christians come to the Bible and the passage is about the future, um, there is a, it's almost like an irresistible urge to go completely mad and start speculating in all sorts of insane ways. I came across one uh, pastor, I think he was, arguing that Jesus taught that Barack Obama... Um, and explicitly named Barack Obama as the, the, the Antichrist who's going to come at the end of the world. Now, you laugh, but it's obvious, isn't it? Just listen to this. So the argument went. Um, Jesus says uh, earlier in Matthew's Gospel, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, the Hebrew word for lightning is Barak. And the Hebrew word for um, a high place, not heaven, but a high place, and heaven is a high place, is Bama. So Barak, Bama, he is... <laughs> And this was a serious argument being, being made. Now, we can laugh at the kind of extremes, but if we're honest, passages like Matthew 24 are confusing. Okay? They, they, they are much debated, even by good Bible-believing evangelicals. Uh, I've given you, uh, I've done something slightly unusual, I've given you an extra sheet this morning. You should have, have a sheet with some Bible verses um, 
tucked into your service sheet that hopefully will help you. Because the whole of Matthew 24 is absolutely woven together with quotes from elsewhere in the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, either direct quotes or kind of allusions. Jesus is using language that would resonate for the disciples and for Jews who are listening to him in a way that it may not do for us unless we're particularly good at knowing our Old Testaments. And therefore, there's a danger that that we don't pick up the echoes. And so we think Jesus is talking about one thing, where actually he's talking about something totally different. Uh, Big picture, let's look at a couple of things. Um, Jesus uh, is responding to a question. Look at verse 1 and 2. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple... And they're impressed. You know, here's the, look at these giant stones. Look at this temple. It's going to stay forever. But, says Jesus, verse 2, you see all these things? Truly I say to you, there'll not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. It's an incredible statement to launch this chapter. Okay, imagine you're in central London. You're on a, one of those sort of red top buses, tour guide buses. And the tour guide points at Buckingham Palace, points at Westminster Abbey, points at the Houses of Parliament, points at Big Ben, points at St Paul's and says, truly, I tell you, not one brick will remain on top of another. Soon this is going to be meadow. It's an almost unbelievable thing to say. And so naturally the disciples ask questions. You see them there in verse 3. Tell us then... And it looks like three questions. When will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Coming and the end of the age, I think, is the same thing. So let's think about them as two questions. When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? In the disciples' mind, the idea of the temple falling would, of course, overlap with the end of the world. They couldn't envisage a world where there's no temple but the, but the world is going on. So it may be that as they ask the question, they're imagining the answer to their question is going to be the same thing. So that, that when the temple will fall and when Jesus will appear, he's sort of returning, that they'll be at the same time. But as we're going to see, Jesus sort of separates them out. When they ask, when will be your coming? In verse three, there's a particular word there. It's a Greek word, parousia. Now, normally don't like to sort of use Greek on a Sunday morning. It doesn't necessarily help that often. But, but it's going to be key for just understanding Jesus' answer. So, so have fixed in your mind two kind of, if you like, two main questions. When will the temple fall? And when will your parousia, your coming, be? Because okay, those are the two questions that Jesus is going to answer. Now, there's an awful lot of debate when you get into the weeds of this passage. So let me try and give you the kind of 20,000 foot view. Okay, so looking down before we get into the details, let's try and have the the, the huge sort of on high view. Uh, What I want to argue is that from verses four through to verse 35, all the way through to verse 35, Jesus is answering that first question all about when the temple is going to fall. Okay, when the one brick won't be on top of another. Verses four all the way through Uh, to verse 35. It's all about the temple. The reason you know that, or one key reason, is verse 34, just at the end. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. This generation won't have passed away. Now, 
this generation means this generation. We'll hit that later. It means the people I'm looking at now. You, James, John, Peter, Mary Magdalene, Pontius Pilate, Herod, whatever. This lot. They're not going to have gone before these things happen. Now, obviously, Jesus can't be talking about his second coming because that generation was well passed away before then. So up to verse 34, it's about the temple and the fall of Jerusalem. And then verses 36 to 44 is about this coming, this parousia word, this second coming, as we sometimes call it. And in fact, it's only in that passage that Jesus picks up the parousia word again. Before that, even though you'll, you'll see in English the word coming, it's a different word. So there we go. Verse 4 to 35, the temple, 36 to 44, the second coming. Both, of course, from Jesus' perspective, are predictions of the future. So Jesus is speaking in about 33 AD. From his perspective, both the fall of the temple and his second coming are in the future. Both are predictions of judgment, too. The fall of the temple is not some horrible tragedy inflicted by the Romans. It is God's judgment the son of man's judgment on rebellious Israel. And of course, the return of Jesus on the last day, whilst it will uh, be a welcome to glory for his people, is also a day of judgment for the earth, again, as we'll see. And, and children, just, just try and get this in your head, because it's going to be, it's, it, I'm warning you, it's a hard warning, okay? it's an exceptionally hard warning. Just try and get this in your head, okay? So imagine a timeline. If you do a timeline at school, like a history timeline, if we start here with Jesus, when Jesus is in 33 AD, he looks forward, and there are two big events. The first is the temple. So we go here to the temple. The temple will fall in 70 AD. I'll come back to that. He also talks about his second coming, which is sometime at the end of the age. But for us, we live between the two after the fall of the temple, but before the second coming. So from our perspective, one of Jesus' predictions has already come true. And that is a significant part of the argument. In fact, in some ways, children, if you take just one thing away this morning, hear this. One of Jesus' warnings of judgment has already come true. And therefore, we can be sure that he will come again. The second one will come true too. One of them has already come true from our perspective. Okay, let's dive into the weeds. We're not going to deal with you. If you've got a favourite verse or your favourite, you know that the Aramaic underneath this Greek verse means this or whatever. Talk, talk to me afterwards or talk to Nick afterwards, even better. Uh, we won't get into all the details, but uh, it is a fascinating passage. Let's look at verses 3 through 35, which is the proof he judges. The proof he judges, the fall of Jerusalem. There are three stages. Children, on your sheets, I put traffic lights. Red, orange, green. There are three stages to Jesus' prediction about what's going to happen with the temple. The first stage is uh, the red light on your sheets, children. This is verses 3 to 14. Things that are going to happen that mean the end isn't close. Okay? It's not time to go. Don't panic. These are the don't panic. Stay still. It's all okay kind of verses. Verses 3 through 14. Uh, in, the, in the middle there, verse 6, Jesus says, you'll hear wars, rumours of wars. See, you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but it's not the end yet. Uh, there are going to be a whole bunch of strange things happening. We get false Christs in verse 5. People turning up and saying, no, no, I'm, I'm the son of man. I'm the Messiah. But don't panic, says Jesus. Christs, we get conflicts, wars and rumours of wars. But don't panic, says Jesus. Christs, conflicts, we get church persecution in verses 9 through 14. They'll deliver you up to tribulation, put you to death. You believers, says Jesus, will be persecuted and killed. Many will, will turn away and say it's not worth sticking with Jesus. 
Many will betray one another. There'll be more false prophets. But keep going. Keep going. Endure and you will be saved. Stick with me and you will be saved, says Jesus. And before the end, verse 14, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. Now here's our first confusing verse, I guess. Remember Jesus is answering the question, what, when will the fall of the temple be? And he says the gospel will be preached to the whole world and then the end will come. And we think, well, the gospel still hasn't gone to every corner of the world, has it, today in 2023? And yet the temple has fallen. So what's going on? Uh, well, let, let me refer to some of the verses on your sheet there. That word, there's a, the word there that means that, that's translated as whole world, it's used lots in the New Testament. And it doesn't, on the whole, mean literally every country you can possibly think of, like New Zealand and Paraguay and Greenland and Scotland and, and France and all the rest of it. It, it means, basically... Um, the kind of the, the world, the known world of the day, the empire of the day. So, for example, in Luke, Luke says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole world should be registered. Now, Caesar wasn't registering the Paraguayans okay, and the Kiwis and the Chinese. It means the, the world of the empire. Um, Agabus, who's a prophet, stands up and says there's going to be a great famine over the whole world. And again, he doesn't mean Canada. He means that the, 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 it's the same word as Jesus uses. He means the sort of known world, uh, the world of the sort of Roman Empire. In fact, Paul can say in Colossians, the gospel has borne fruit in the whole world. And we know at that stage the gospel has got no further than a bit of kind of what we now call Turkey and a little bit of Greece. It's got nowhere near France and the UK and wherever else. And so Jesus is speaking in that kind of language. The gospel will be preached to all the nations before the end doesn't mean every country you can conceive of in 2023. It means it will have got across the kind of Roman Empire world before the temple falls. And indeed, it, it has done. That's why Paul can write those things in Colossians and Romans. The spread of the gospel does get right around that kind of Roman Empire world before AD 70, which is when the temple is destroyed. So on the red traffic light, children, a bunch of wars will begin. There'll be false messiahs, but, but don't panic. Things only heat up when we move uh, to our second traffic light on your sheet, children. Uh, verses 15 to 28. Uh, that's the orange light. This is the get ready. When you see the abominations desolate you, so when you see that, we'll come to what it is, but when you see that, then you've got to do something. Verse 16, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Again, that's a clue. We're not talking about the second coming. Okay, if you, if it, Jesus' second coming, you can't go to hide in the mountains, can you? And he wouldn't say, look, if you just happen to be living in Judea, one country in the Middle East, go and hide in the mountains. He's clearly not talking about the second coming yet. So there's a trigger, this abomination of desolation, whatever that might be. There's an action, verse 16, run, and then there's a warning. Verse 21, there will be great tribulation. Another phrase, the great tribulation that, you, that Christians love to kind of speculate about. It means, children, great tribulation means great suffering. Okay, great trouble, great persecution. A trigger, an action, and a warning. 
Well, what is he talking about? Let's, let's dive in a little bit more deeply. What is, first of all, this abomination of desolation? Uh, it sounds terrifying, doesn't it? But what do we learn about it? We learn about it spoken, that it's spoken of by the prophet Daniel. Uh, that little phrase, abomination of desolation, it is a quote from the book of Daniel. I put it on your sheets again, Daniel 11. Uh, back then, the Lord God, through Daniel, prophesies something terrible that will happen to the Jewish people. Now, this is, actually happens about 167 years before Christ. Okay, So this, this has already happened by this time. But 167 years before Christ... Uh, the Jews kept being conquered by different, di- different empires. Uh, and one of them uh, was a guy called Antiochus Epiphanes. He was a, uh, an emperor, a king, an overlord. And he came, he conquered the Jews, and he set up a statue to Zeus in the middle of the temple. And he even sacrificed pigs, which sacrificed them on the altar. And this was known as the abomination of desolation. Um, desolation sorry. Abomination is a kind of a horror, a terror. Uh, it was the worst thing that could happen. Jesus says something's going to happen again a bit like that. It's not that one, because that's already happened 167 years ago. But that thing that Daniel spoke about, there's going to be another one like that. Watch out. Uh, What was it? It's hard to be really precise. Uh, But uh, it's important for us to know, or useful for us to know, I think, that uh, in 66 AD, so about 30 years after Jesus is speaking, just over 30 years after Jesus is speaking, that the Jews who were being conquered at that stage by the Roman Empire, who were under the Roman Empire, the Jews decided they'd had enough and were going to rebel. So a huge war kicked off. Uh, but the Romans, unsurprisingly, just crushed them. 67, 68 AD, the Romans just crushed the Jewish rebellion. Um, the Romans then had their own little meltdown, and so they, they sort of put the whole campaign on pause. And in 68, 69 AD, the, the Jews fought a huge civil war. Now, this is all recorded in the, in the various history books of the time, um, particularly as a Jewish historian called Josephus, who was around at the time. And he writes about it, all these different groups and different factions of Jews fighting each other in a civil war. At one stage, one group controlled the inner part of the temple and one group controlled the outer part of the temple. And it was total carnage. And eventually, once the Romans had sorted themselves out and stopped killing each other, they came back in the year 70 and totally destroyed Jerusalem. A general called Titus, who eventually became emperor, marched in, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. That big picture is what Jesus is warning about. Okay, that's why you can flee it. Okay, run to the mountains. When, when they start coming, run, he's saying. You're not going to win. Don't, don't think you'll be able to hold out. The end is coming. Why? Because ultimately God's hand is behind it. Jesus is prophesying it as the final judgment of God uh, on his rebellious people. Uh, what specifically the abomination uh, is referring to? It's, it's hard to be exact, I think. Some people think it's the, the Romans coming into the temple and setting up their kind of Roman standards with their sort of false gods on in the temple. That would be a bit like the Antiochus Epiphanes thing. The only problem with that is that once the Romans are in the temple, it's a bit late to flee. Okay, remember, Jesus' words are, when you see the abomination of desolation, flee. Once the Romans are in the temple, it's a bit late to flee. So I'm not totally convinced by that. I think much more likely the Old Testament has sort of led us to understand what this may be. Abomination, children, means pollution. 
So the phrase means something like the pollution that leads to destruction. And all the way through the Old Testament, we see this word abomination, or some versions of pollution, time to time again when it's talking about idolatrous worship. Uh, on the whole, I've tried to stick most of the useful verses on your sheet, but, but come with me to the book of Ezekiel. Let's do a little bit of digging. Uh, book of Ezekiel. And chapter 5. Ezekiel's writing in the days when the Jews have been conquered by the Babylonians. And the, although Ezekiel's out in, in exile, he's given a vision of terrible things happening back home in the temple. The temple is still standing. Look at Ezekiel 5 and verse 11, God speaking. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary, that's the temple, polluted my sanctuary with all your detestable things and with all your abominations, therefore I will withdraw. My eye will not spare and I'll have no pity. See the words again, the abomination, the pollution. Because you've brought idols into my temple, I'm going to leave, says God. I'll leave my own home living among you. Flick over the page, chapter 7. Verse 3. Now the end is upon you. I will send my anger upon you, says God. I will judge you according to your ways and I'll punish you for all your abominations. It's the idle thing again. Or verse 9. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I'll punish you according to your ways while your abominations are in your midst. Time and again, and we could go on and on and on. Abomination means an idol being worshipped in the temple. And therefore polluting it. And so God withdraws. Have a look at chapter 8 and verse 6. He said to me, so God said to me, Ezekiel, son of man, do you not see what they're doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel <clears throat> are committing here to drive me far from my sanctuary. But you'll see still greater abominations. And he brought me to the entrance of the court. And when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. He said to me, son of man, dig in the wall. So I dug in the wall and behold, there was an entrance. And he said, go in and seal the vile abominations they are committing here. And as you read on, what do we see? We see idols, false worship going on in the temple. Remember where we are in Matthew's gospel. Jesus, the son of God, has come to the temple just two or three chapters earlier. The son of God has come. This should be the great and, and, and greatest highlight of, of the history of God's people. The son of God in flesh on earth. Jesus, of course, is um, the, the, the true God of Israel. He's not a lesser being. He's not a super angel. He's not created by God. He is God. Father, Son, and Spirit, one God in three persons. And here, the second verse of the Trinity is incarnate, in flesh, in the temple. And what do they do? They reject him. Uh, and turn, will turn from the true God. And therefore become idolaters. It's the horrible irony of the story of Israel. They've become idolaters on the whole. Not all, of course, because some do turn to Jesus as Messiah, but many don't. Look how it ends in, in chapter Ezekiel 11. I think this is, this is incredible. Ezekiel 11 and verse 23. 
um, Ezekiel is seeing that that in in a vision the temple of God. And what he sees is is God leaving. Remember, God's presence filled the the center of the temple, but he then leaves. Verse 22, let's go from 22. The cherubim, these strange angelic beings, lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. So they're like the chariot that he's riding on. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east of the city. Could you just keep that in your head, children? Do you understand that God is going up, as it were, on his chariot? And leaving Jerusalem's temple and going to the mountain on the east of the city. Mountain on the east of the city. Bury that in your heads, children. Come back to Matthew. We're done in Ezekiel. Come back to Matthew. Matthew 24, verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away. And where does he go? Verse 3. He sat on the Mount of Olives. Where is the Mount of Olives? The Mount of Olives is the mountain east of the temple. The other gospel sped out the geography for us. Jesus is enacting exactly what happened in Ezekiel. God's presence is leaving the temple, going east and settling on the Mount of Olives, east of the temple, just as he had done in Ezekiel's vision. This is a hard work, I realise. It's a very complex chapter and there are certainly loose threads here, there and everywhere. What I think is going on here in this middle section, this warning section, this orange section is this. Jesus is saying, the temple has had it. You've rejected me. I've left your time, Jerusalem. But the, the temple you can see, it's, it's over. And it'll fall eventually within a generation. And so when you see the enemy coming, when you see all the idolatrous worship that's going on in the temple... Run. Don't think that God is going to save you again. This is it. Hence in verse 16, all those instructions to run. Don't listen to false messiahs. Josephus, again, this contemporary historian, this general, Jewish general who fought in the wars. Speaking about Jerusalem, says of so great a multitude, not one escaped. Their destruction was caused by a false prophet who had on that day proclaimed to those remaining in the city that God had commanded them to go up to the temple and there receive the signs of their deliverance. Don't listen to the false prophets, Jesus says. Cephas tells us that there was one who said, no, stay in the temple. It's all going to be fine. And tragically, as we'll see in a moment, the end did come. Lots of details we're not picking apart. But in this amber warning, this orange light children on your sheets, Jesus is saying, when the Jews have rejected me and begin worshipping other gods, turn to, to other gods, which is anyone other than Jesus. If you don't worship Jesus, you're an idolater. And the armies start coming, run. Because eventually, finally, the end for the temple will come. Here's the green light on your sheets, children. Verses 29 to 35, the end, the axe falls. Verses 29 through 35. See two time markers. Verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days. Notice the tribulation, by the way, is not some sort of weird thing that happens in the future. The tribulation is the the suffering that happens in the run-up to the fall of Jerusalem. And it's immediately after that. Immediately after this abomination of of desolation, this pollution that causes God to leave. Immediately after it, well, these huge events will happen. We'll come back to them. 
And again, the second time marker, verse 34, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So all this is going to happen, the stuff described in verses 29 through 34, within a generation, let's say 40 years or so, of Jesus speaking. Uh, again, I'm not going to go through them, but put in your sheet some other times Matthew uses the word generation. The word generation means what you'd expect the word generation to mean, about 30 years, 40 years or so. Uh, that means that even though the language seems huge in verse 29 and 30, Jesus is still talking about the fall of the temple. He's not yet talking about the second coming. But look at the language, verse 29. After the tribulation, immediately after the tribulation, still in that generation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven. Well, surely that's the second coming. Did the stars fall out of heaven in 70 AD? Did the moon go dark, the sun go dark? No. So how can Jesus be talking about the temple still? How can he say it happened in those generations? In fact, this is one of the passages that people who want to scoff at the Bible go to and say, well, look, Jesus said the end of the world would come within one generation, and it didn't, so he was clearly wrong. But Jesus is not talking about the end of the world here. He's talking about the fall of the temple, and he's using Bible languages. Last time we're going to leave Matthew. Come to Isaiah. Sorry to jump around. Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah chapter 13. Children, if you open your Bible in the middle, you get to Psalms, possibly Isaiah. It's sort of more or less in the middle. If you get to the Psalms, go forwards a little bit. Isaiah chapter 13. This is the, this is the language that Jesus is borrowing. Uh, let me go from verse 9. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation, to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. See the language? Sun, moon, stars, they all go out. What's it talking about? End of the world? No. Verse 1. This oracle concerning Babylon. All look down a bit later in the chapter. And verse 19, or verse 17, sorry. Behold, I'm stirring up the Medes, it's an empire, against them, against the Babylonians. They, their bows will slaughter the young men, they'll have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. And Babylon, verse 19, the glory of the kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the uh, Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. This language of stars going dark and suns being blotted out and everything, it is prophetic language used throughout the Old Testament, not just in that passage, but that's one that's particularly clear, of the fall and destruction of empires, not necessarily the end of the world. In fact, it almost exclusively in the Old Testament, it's used of the fall of particular cities or empires. John, it's a bit like this. If, if I came to you and said, oh, do you know what? Um, the other day, my wife caught me... Um, stealing chocolate from the cupboard and she went through the roof okay would you expect to see my wife with her head sticking out the roof you wouldn't would you you know i'm sort of using picture language oh, if you came home and said look mom mom i was naughty today and my teacher exploded okay you don't your mom's not gonna think she went pop or perhaps more seriously if you were to meet someone from ukraine they may well say a year or so ago, my whole world fell apart. It's like a darkness has descended over our entire country. 
you wouldn't say to them, but look, the sun's still shining and, and, and the tectonic plates haven't shattered. You know what they're doing. They're using sort of metaphors, picture language that we're used to in, in, in English. Well, so too Jesus here. He's still talking about the fall of Jerusalem, which is a huge event. And the significance is explained in verse 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and all the tribes of the earth, more literally the land, these are the, the, the Jewish tribes, will mourn. And they'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. It feels like we just jump from sort of complicated verse to complicated verse this morning, I'm afraid. But, but again, what is going on? As Jerusalem is destroyed, all the tribes of the land mourn. Well, that's no surprise. It's their capital city. And then appears what? Literally, that verse reads, verse 30. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. In other words... It's not the sign that's in the heavens. It's the sign that the Son of Man is in heaven. Okay, that's a really important distinction. It's not, then you'll see in the sky some sort of supernatural sign that shows the Son of Man is in heaven. Rather, you will see a sign that shows the Son of Man is in heaven. The sign isn't in the heaven. The Son of Man is in heaven. The sign is the destruction of, of Jerusalem. That is the sign that he has left. That he's gone. And it's explained by the Daniel verse. He quotes Daniel. I put this one on your sheet so you don't have to flick around anymore. He quotes Daniel, this son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great authority. Do you see it there in Daniel? Daniel gets this prophecy. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. So he's coming. Here's the son of man coming on the clouds. Where does he go? He comes to the Ancient of Days, that's God, and was presented before him. He goes up, in other words, not down. This isn't about Jesus coming on the clouds down to earth. It's about Jesus arriving in heaven on all the clouds and being welcomed by God, and verse 14, being given power, dominion, glory, a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages to serve him. This is Jesus being enthroned in heaven, like we sang in Psalm 24 earlier. Lift up your gates that the king of glory may come in. When Jerusalem is destroyed, you will know that is it. And Jesus is no longer reigning. God is no longer reigning through those kings in Jerusalem as he did with David and Solomon and so on. His presence is no longer found in the temple down there, but rather he's reigning in the new heavenly Jerusalem in heaven. His presence is found there and the kingdom is going international rather than local. Verse 31, he'll send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they'll gather the elect, his chosen people from the four winds. That's what's going on now, isn't it? We're no longer being gathered to one city in Jerusalem. The gospel has gone international to the ends of the earth because Jesus rules from heaven. And all that happened. And it did did happen, as Jesus predicted, uh, within a generation now, look, that is, that is heavy, heavy work. There's much more we could say. There's many verses we've skipped over. Important to note that Jesus' words came true. Those wars did begin in the mid-60s. I put some verses on your sheet where the, even from books like Acts tell us about some of the things that Jesus prophesied happening, famines and rebellions and uprisings and things. But look what the punchline is for us this morning. Verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. 
It's an incredible thing that Jesus knew this would happen 40 years before it did, prophesied it. It shows that you can trust his words. And really, in many ways, I mean, this is a terrible thing to say, isn't it? After 35 minutes, kind of longest ever sermons. But in many ways, that what, what this week is doing is setting up next week and the following weeks. It is setting up us to know that when he prophesies the future, it will happen. Because although from where we're standing, one of the things he's prophesied has happened, one hasn't. That's our last little bit, and this is going to be incredibly quick. You'll be relieved to hear. Verses 36 to 44, we've seen the proof that he'll judge. In 36 to 44, we get the promise he'll judge. Now we do move to the second coming. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. There's that parousia word. That's the second coming word again. And so in 36 onwards, I think we're in the territory of the second coming. And it'll be a surprise. Jesus doesn't even know when it's going to happen. Now, he's talking as man. As man, Jesus doesn't know all things, does he? He's truly God. And as God, he knows all things. But as man, he's limited. He doesn't know everything. He's a true man. He's got a real human mind. If you ask Jesus, if you stop Jesus, interrupted him and said, sorry, Jesus, got a question. Um, sorry to interrupt, but um, who's going to be the 32nd president of the USA? Jesus would have said, well, what's the USA? According to his human nature. He doesn't know all things according to his human nature. Okay? Now, there's a, there's a massive mystery there, of course. How does Jesus' psychology work? No idea. According to his divine nature, he knows all things. Human doesn't. So there we go. But that's why he doesn't know all things. It's not some sort of weird split in the Trinity or something. But Jesus says, even I don't know, and you won't know. It'll be like the flood. You'll just be doing normal things, and then bang, I'll return. Some will be taken, some won't. To be taken, by the way, is a bad thing in this context. In the, I think it's in the 90s. A bunch of really quite strange books were written, um, whose name I've just temporarily forgotten. Left behind, there we go, left behind. Um, I, they might have drifted out of the Christian world now. Let's hope they have. But, but in them, there was a strange idea that um, before Jesus returns, cr- some Christians would suddenly get some sucked off. And so you'd have these situations where um, two Christians were flying the plane, the plane and the co-pilot, and they both got raptured and suddenly no one's flying the plane and someone had to, you know, it's all very weird. To be taken, to be taken here is being compared to being taken by the floodwaters, in other words, destroyed. It's not a good thing to be taken. You want to be left, not taken. Jesus says, it will happen. One day I will return like that. Children, if you've understandably got somewhat confused in the last half hour. Come back with me now. Jesus promises he will return and he will judge. And therefore, his big thing is be ready. Now, what that readiness looks like is going to be explored in the parables over the next few weeks. But, but let me ask you to go into this week, look at your diary, ask the question, am I, am I ready? Am I living as if he's about to come back? Because all his words come true and he's promised he will do. Students, are you planning your careers, your where are you going to live? Who are you going to marry? Are you planning that around the second coming of Jesus? That is the one date that is certain in your future. Everything else is uncertain. The one thing you can be certain of, literally only thing, is that Jesus will return. He might, he might return before you die. He might not even die. Who knows? The one thing you can be certain of is he'll return. If you're new to Christianity, it, it, maybe this sounds like one of those sort of wacko things. Yeah, why? In some ways I understand, but Jesus' words have come true already. And the main way you get ready is coming to him and asking for mercy. He came to die, to be rejected, in order that we could be welcomed and forgiven. Ultimately, for all of us, that is how you're ready. 
by putting your trust in him wholeheartedly and then shaping your life around that date in the diary above all others, above graduation, above the wedding day, above the anniversaries. Shape your life around that day. It will come. Jesus promises and his words never fail. Let me pray for us and then we'll stand to sing. Our Father in heaven, uh, your word is rich and wonderful and mysterious in many ways. Uh, we pray that all is, that is true that I've said this morning will strengthen us, all of this. How uh, wrong would it fade away? Uh, but we pray that you would make us those people who are ready for Christ's return, who are awake, not asleep. Give, therefore, forgiveness and mercy and faith to those who need it. Wake us up, um, those of us who have become spiritually sleepy. And might we orientate our lives, not around this age, but the age to come. Give us the grace to know that our lives on earth are are like a dot compared to an everlasting line of eternity. And therefore, would we shape all that we are, all that we do, all that we have around the glory to come. Bless us in that way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.